This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Today's podcast is a chat with Charlie Jane Anders, who has been so patient. We have been trying to talk for, honestly, months. And Charlie's book, Victory is Greater Than Death, is fabulous. Like, I love this book. It's a queer YA sci-fi romp through space. And um, I loved chatting with Charlie Jane. And hey, you know what else? Speaking of things I love, I love you, my listeners. And have you thought about being a Patreon patron for this show? You go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros and you can become a patron of this show. Now, some folks have adjusted their monthly donations down a little bit. Why? I think because like, and this is not everybody, but it's a few people. And why? Because like people's moolah situation ebbs and flows. I know mine does. So if you are somebody who could give like a dollar a month, $5 a month to keep this show running, help me pay Sierra and to keep us getting great guests like Charlie Jane, have amazing conversations. You go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros and you do not just me a favor, but your fellow listeners a favor because they can't support your ass all the time, dragging you through things. Look, we all have ups and downs. So if this is your moment where you're feeling a little up and you say, I could give $12 a year to keep Query going. Well then there you go. This is your moment. Hey, enjoy the episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Yeah, so thanks, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. This is exciting. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really, really glad to talk to talk to you. And actually, I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you start by introducing yourself? Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a trans uh, author of science fiction and other genres, and uh, I'm the author of a young adult trilogy called The Unbroken Trilogy. The first book, Victories Greater Than Death, is out now. I also recently wrote a book called Never Say You Can't Survive about how to use creative writing to get through really hard times, like some of the times we've been living through. Wow, and also, I, I don't actually know this. Do you go by Charlie or Charlie Jane? For you I go by I Charlie Jane. Hello, Charlie Jane. Uh, Hi. First of all, I just want to say for the listeners uh, so the, to endear you to them even more, although obviously as we continue to talk, they will be endeared to you, that you have been I, so patient sorry. because we did try. Sorry, to I do oh. use I use she, her pronouns. I'm sorry. Oh, did I? Yeah, it's, did it's I? totally fine. I just thought I should. I should. I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. Sure, absolutely. Did I did I use an incorrect pronoun or, you, you, or, or did I just not the, ask? You use they them, which is totally like always a good Oh, I was um normally... I was talking about the audience to endear you oh, to sorry, them, sorry. the audience. Okay. Yes. I see. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I totally misunderstood. No, that's yeah, that's okay. Um, I am so sorry. Usually I change my thank zoom. You for I hopping in. My... Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. To endear you to our audience even more. I just wanted to mention um, that we tried to do this one time and uh, they started taking down a tree that was directly in front of where I record this podcast. 
during, like, as we were talking, a giant truck showed up, a tree started to come down, and then they pulled up one of those, like, um, tree chippers, uh, like, from the movie Fargo, and that was happening directly in front of me. And I, I didn't know what to do, because it's like, there's not another uh, sound, more soundproof place in the house than I live than this. Uh, so anyway, thank you for rescheduling, because we had already been talking when that was happening. Yeah, and it was lovely chatting with you last time. I was sad we were interrupted. I also had like people unexpectedly show up to try to install uh, new internet service at my place oh my while God, we were right. talking. So we were both. <laughs> it was one of those things where it was like, okay, yep, our our studios are just like being invaded by like you know random people trying to do stuff, and it was it was kind of a comedy of errors. It was kind of amazing, like how yes. just like everything was conspiring. It was it was Absolutely. kind of in- incredible. It really was. And the other thing that had happened is that because of just, I think, like shipping delays, I had not, when we first talked, and so in some ways it's really great that we pushed, when we first talked, I hadn't received Victories Greater Than Death, so I like I hadn't read it yet. And I was just kind of going in being like, well, hopefully Charlie Jane and I will have like an excellent conversation based on just being two humans. Um, but I have, because we delayed, I have had a chance to read your beautiful book. Um, and so I have, you know, some, so I will, so it will be a more intelligent and informed conversation on my end, which I'm thrilled about. Um, so first, you know, I loved that you jumped in and, you know, wanted to have, and wanted to, uh, talk about what your pronouns were. And this is something that, um, really stands out to me about the book. So like, let's just pivot right to there that, um, something that, so victory is greater than death maybe you could just like do you want to do like a like a log line one sentence summary for yeah totally so victory is greater than death is about a teenage girl named tina who has known for a long time that she's actually an alien who was left on earth as a baby in disguise to wait for when she was old enough for the aliens to come back and get her. And now it's time and she's ready to go back into the galaxy and rejoin, you know, that community and be part of this, like, and, and basically resume her life as a hero, saving the galaxy and stuff. But it turns out to be more complicated than she was expecting. And being a hero turns out to be more complicated and it turns out that she's actually going to really need her chosen family around her in order to survive what's coming. Yes. Yeah, it's sort of opposite Superman. Right? Superman left on Earth to then defend Earth. Oh my God. This is opposite Superman, alien left on Earth to then return to the aliens and and participate there. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's totally true. She has almost the same origin story as Superman. And it's like, yeah, except she's like, screw this planet, I'm out of here. You know, as soon as she can, she's like, I'm going to get back to where the action is. And like, which, Oh, I was just going to say, I was surprised by, actually. I think I thought that, like, there would be more, um, uh, that Earth would play, like, a bigger role. But I th- thought that was really, I think it's a really great jumping off place for her to to so welcome the this part of her fate. It, actually, just as a human who, like, hates and is scared of change, I was like, Tina, you are full of guts. Because <laughs> oh I don't God. know that I would embrace uh, um moving into a more intergalactic lifestyle the way that she did you know i mean when i was a when i was a kid i all i wanted was for aliens to come and take me away i was like i'm tired of this planet screw earth earth sucks 
please just take me away to a different planet where I can like, or to out into space where I can have an awesome life visiting different planets and meeting aliens and like having like laser gun battles and stuff. And like, that's all I wanted. I wanted aliens to show up and say, oh, you don't really belong here. You're not really a human. You were just left here on earth. I think that, you know, in retrospect, that might've been my way of dealing with being a very queer kid with a severe learning disability, like a visibly queer kid with a severe learning disability who got a lot of hassle as a kid. I just, I think I was like, well, one day the aliens are going to come get me and I'll be among the people who understand and appreciate me. And that kind of did happen, but the aliens were basically San Francisco. And, you know, (laughs) but, you know, I mean, I always think about like Luke Skywalker (laughs) at the start of the first Star Wars where he's like, I'm sick of being stuck on this planet. I want to go off and like have adventures. And they're like, you have to go muck out the moisture converters or whatever it is that they do or like you know you have to change the filters and he's like i don't want you you know that's so funny i mean for me i think when i i think when i think about luke skywalker specifically like it's a it's a moderately whiny version of it is the thing that you're talking not it's not moderate it's super whiny. it's pretty whiny version but you know it's funny because they like got to redo it with ray and i think that her she's like going through the same stuff but doing it in a um it's just like less whiny i don't know if that's just like the times have changed or like i don't know why that is true but what you're describing I mean, maybe some of it is also like identity based, right? Because the things that um, Luke Skywalker is pissed off about are like chores or whatever. But you're talking about like uh, calling um, that's based on, you know, a true sense of like not feeling at at home in the place Mm -hmm. that's supposed to feel like home. For Um, sure. Which I think a lot of people can relate to. For sure. Definitely. I know I can. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is so. So anyway, the whole reason that I was also saying that pronouns was a good pivot point for this book. I have I have read a lot of queer literature and even some like, you know, I've read a lot of I think uh, certainly compared to like the general um average. I've definitely read a lot of queer YA literature. This is the first book I've ever read where like everybody's pronouns are stated as the character is introduced. Some of that is also then you have a, um, I can't remember the name for the universal translator. There's like, there's a universal translator that the aliens have. And what's it called? The every speak, the every speak. Yeah. So the every speak like you, the reader realizes th- later in the book that the every speak has been introducing people's pronouns, like um, even if they're as a as a way of translating their name, almost like it's like part of introducing what that person's saying, um, and it's very interesting to read a book that does that. Never read it before. Um, had you? read a book that did that before writing a book that did that? I'm trying to think. I don't think I had. I think I'd read books where people talk about pronouns or where people are trying to, you know, I've definitely read a lot of trans literature where people, you know, are trying to get people to use their correct pronouns, but I've never, no, I've never read a book like that. And like, it just, it felt like a cool thing. Like at first, 
like there's at first when I started writing it, I was just like, oh, here's a cool thing to do. This would be kind of cool if this happened. Like every time we meet someone, we're going to learn their pronoun. And like with aliens, you know, I think with humans too, but definitely with aliens, you're not going to be able to tell what their gender is by looking at them a lot of the time. And that's, again, true with humans too, but we tend to assume with humans that it's true. And But I also just was like, okay, if they've got this universal translator that is designed to help them understand each other better, why wouldn't it make sure that you knew someone's right pronouns so that you understood who you're talking to? And in the second book of the trilogy, I actually kind of spell out that, like, say you actually decided you were going to use the wrong pronoun for somebody. Like, say there was, like, a trans person you were going to use, like, they were a trans woman and you were going to use the male pronoun for them or something. Their translator will not let you do that. It'll, it'll before anybody else hears it, it'll be like, well, this was clearly a mistake or a, mis- a misunderstanding. I'm going to just fix this before anybody else hears it. And so nobody, it's impossible to use the wrong pronoun for somebody if you're using that translator. And, it, and I was just like, that's like, that's my, one of my little pieces of utopia, I guess. You know, I, I think another thing, when you just said that, you know, especially encountering aliens, it would be hard to determine their gender. I think, again, you know, this is why, oh, this is why I love having this podcast because, you know, since historically the the voices that have been lifted up in all spaces, including like sci-fi, I don't think that's something that, like I think about um, television and film and how much historically we've like cue, chosen to cue gender around like these are other life forms. They could be anything. It could be anything. Like I often think about um, like the first time I saw Wally and like you, the viewer is definitely supposed to know that like Wally is a boy and Eva's a girl. Like I think that is so clearly meant to be communicated by the mm-hmm. way that those, the shapes that are used. Um, yeah. Oh my God. That's so interesting. You're like right. beyond beyond their names, like Eva's all round and curvy and, you know, Wally is like hard and dirty and I, and, and there's box. Yeah. yeah and box. And there's a real sense of wow. um, gender. You're so those right. characters. And, and I, I love that you're in this space right now because well, so I think we, I think that many times we just fall into that. Like, and, and especially if the person is a, is like a straight cis dude who, so, you know, for so long, been able to control these spaces. I, I always think about how, like, in these other worlds that we've created, like, how, like, how is no, like, how are, like, how is nobody queer? Like, how is, how is nobody gay? Like, how is that? How are they just introducing Star Wars characters now? And then, obviously, in this book, there's also, like, there's, it's an even more expanded version than that. Because it's not just, like. And this Star Wars ship captain is a lesbian. It's like, there's like third gen, there's like a diversity of genders that are beyond what we can imagine on earth. And I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm just wanted to hear more about like, I guess my question is like, well, are you, are you, you're a fan of this space first before a creator in this space? Is this like the space you grew up in? Did you grow up writing or reading? And watching sci-fi stuff, fantasy stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, as a kid, I just I was obsessed with like all of the sci-fi things, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Star Trek, you know, 
superheroes. I, I loved them and I still love them. I think that they're amazing. And they're such a great metaphor for trying to do good and finding your people. Like, I feel like so many of these stories are about finding your own people and finding, like finding your chosen family. I feel like this is a thing that we've been talking in sci-fi specifically. There's been this huge dialogue in the last like several years about like the importance of chosen family and the importance of like, and how all the stories that we really loved when we were kids were really about chosen family. And they were about like finding people who appreciate you and accept you and understand you. And like that, that's what we all really wanted. And that's what we still kind of crave from a lot of these stories. And, you know, I think that that's super important. I also just like part of the thing of like, like, I don't know, when I was, when I was a teenager, I got to travel some, like I took a year off before college and traveled around the world. And, you know, I feel like when you travel, you know, even just here on earth, you do get to start to think about like how the things that we assume have to be a certain way, the things we take for granted don't have to be that way. And that was the first, that was my first like experience of like meeting a lot of different queer people in a lot of different places for one thing, but also just like getting to kind of break out of my cultural assumptions because I feel like we always, there's this, you know, powerful thing that culture does where it makes us think that, you know, the way we live now is is natural or normal or real or regular or whatever. And it's usually just some decision that somebody made, like, you know, <laughs> not that long ago, you know, right. like, it's almost like you show up for, for a party and someone's like, five minutes before you got there, somebody's arranged all the furniture in these weird upside down configurations. And they're like, no, it's been like this for 5,000 years. And it's like, they did it right before you came in the door. But that's, that's how culture works is that we pretend things that we just decided recently, like, anyway, it's, it's weird and it doesn't make any sense. When you were reading this stuff or, or even now, you know, and being in these worlds, cause I, I, I mean, I, I think that's actually, you know, that's, that's sort of what I want to say about this book. It's like, I, it's not the metaphorical understanding of like, like, why did I love X-Men so much? Or like, why do I still love X-Men? Like, that's not lost on me. Like, I'm not confused about like, oh my God, a persecuted group of people come together and they all have different skills that are amazing and they're like so hot and also if they touch you they might kill you but um don't worry because they can just wear gloves and uh you know they're pushed out by society but they get to live in a house together and that's amazing you know like that's not lost on me but i think what's interesting to me about your book is that I think for so long when we, I think when we operate only in a metaphorical space, you know, especially for queer people, we can like see ourselves in the, it's, it's like, it's actually kind of like what's been happening with the breakdown of JK Rowling, where it's like the metaphorical stuff was there, but when the like action, when the literal stuff isn't there, that's a problem. Like that breaks down over time. You know, you, we, we can't like love metaphor forever, especially when we find out that the people that wrote the metaphor, like, really don't really have, really have bad views. But, you know, I think that's what I loved about your book so much is that it's, it's like not metaphorical. It's there. I mean, in this world, it's literal. Like these are people of many genders. These are people of many sexualities. It's a literal space where I could see myself as opposed to imagining that. Yeah. And I, I wanted, I feel like metaphor only takes you so far. I feel like metaphor at a certain point does start to break down 
especially if there's like a living creator who can go in and kind of change things around after you've already fallen in love with the story or can go in and like tell you what they think the story is or whatever. But even if that's not the case, when you're to some extent, when you're you're kind of like seeing these metaphors and things that, you know, maybe weren't consciously intended to represent queerness or other kinds of marginalization, you know, it's never going to be a perfect, it's never going to fit perfectly and it's never going to work, you know, beyond a certain point because, you know, I feel like the the intent is not there and the kind of the follow-through is not there, if that makes sense. And I feel like the follow-through is what's important. Like, you know, Star Trek always had a lot of you know, stuff that felt very queer to me in terms of, like, how they, like, there was a lot of, obviously, Kirk and Spock were, obvi- were always hot for each other, but also <laughs> just, you know, there was just always, it felt like this kind of, like, more optimistic, happier vision of the future that felt very, like, utopian in a way that felt very queer to me. But it's only recently with, like, Star Trek Discovery that we suddenly have a version of Star Trek where there's a lot of queer people on screen, and oh my god, it just suddenly feels like Star Trek is living its best life and like living up <laughs> its full potential for the first time. Right. And you know, it's it's it feels like Star Trek has kind of gone from, you know, something that you could see yourself into, something that you something that you can't definitely can and would and and you know, if you watch it, you will see yourself in it. And I feel like that's a really important thing and I think that we've kind of maybe move past the point of of needing all these metaphors or we know I still we can still enjoy them and still love them and whatever but I feel like there are so many queer creators making amazing stories right now and putting themselves into it that you know we don't necessarily need to look for you know ourselves in the works of people who didn't you know identify as queer or you know were never able to talk about queerness in a meaningful way and you know I think that that's really awesome and I think that what it frees you up to do in a way is to tell, to have, there's still going to be metaphors in there. You're never going to not have metaphors. What it frees you up to do is to have better metaphors and to have metaphors that kind of say, okay, here on the surface of the narrative, there's a queer chosen family. We're talking about queerness openly, but the metaphor maybe is, you know, how do we do better for each other? How do we treat each other better? How do we try to be heroes without turning into assholes? Because I feel like assholes, assholes kind of the end state of hero most of the time. And how do we, how do we build a better society now that we've got it? Like, I feel like I've certainly witnessed, sorry, this is going to get a little ranty, but I've certainly witnessed many times in my own experience that you have queer communities that have like built something wonderful for themselves and then be like, okay, we're done. We don't have, we don't owe anybody else anything else. You know, there's there's other marginalized people, including other a lot of marginalized queer people, right over here, and we don't need to care about them because we've built ourselves our nice little queer, you know, quasi utopia. And it's like, nope. You know what? And so that I feel like those are the metaphors that we can have once you start acknowledging queerness. Is like, okay, so great, you've now built your queer chosen family, and it's on the page. What do we owe everybody else? What do we owe other people who are still struggling? Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. I also think, you know, for me anyway, I mean, you know, things will always, things will remain queer coded and I'm sure there will be moments where I'm like, oh my God, you don't even realize that you made that. Like, you know, every time oh I watch God. Frozen on a plane. Um, but, you know, I just think, um, <laughs> I think if we're never actually there, you know, there's a messaging that like, we're just too disgusting to be there, right? Like if, if, if one, if an identity only gets to live in metaphor, 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's one of that's like one of the biggest changes in my lifetime in terms of media is and my adulthood even is like moving from because it's not like I didn't grow up with stuff that I could have you know when I was a young person coming out that I could imagine queer messaging that was mainstream but I think it's really different to 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 have it not be in my imagination this is huge yeah I think I mean you're totally right that like you know when when where people are not openly represented, when it's like a subtle kind of coded thing, there is internalized homophobia and, and transphobia and just all the phobias. Like that's, that's, there is internalized, you know, loathing or self-loathing perhaps on the point of part of the culture and creators that didn't feel like we deserve to actually be acknowledged. You know, I think that that's hundred percent true. Oh. I don't know. I should have asked you this before, but can we, can we, I mean, I know that this was like publicly announced. So th- this was, this is being developed for TV, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, super excited to see what happens with that. Um, you know, yeah, it's being, it was optioned by Michael B. Jordan's production company, uh, Outlier Society. And uh, they have a deal with Amazon. So Amazon Studios is developing it. Um, I've been having really amazing conversations with the folks at Outlier Society and Amazon about like what they're going to do with it. And I'm just so excited to see where it goes because I feel like, I, I mean, this is, as much as this is a book I wish I'd had when I was a kid, that's, that would be a TV show that I definitely wish I would have had when I was a kid. Like if I could have had, you know, a show with that level of acceptance and that level of representation when I was like, you know, a struggling teenager or whatever, I would have just, I would have been so over the moon. And uh, I feel like, I don't know, I'm really, I can't wait to see what happens. Like I'm hoping to be involved a lot too. And I think that uh, there's a lot of stuff in the book that, you know, because a YA book has to move so fast, there's so much pacing. There's stuff that I would love to kind of take a little bit more time and unpack and spend a little more time on. So I'm hoping we get to do that. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, was this, was this on your mind when you were writing the book, the, the that it could eventually become something for TV? Or was that like a Beyond Wildest Dreams sort of a thing? Where, where were you on that when you were writing it? I mean, it's so funny. Like, I've had some of my stuff optioned by Hollywood. I've had a, actually a decent amount of my stuff optioned by Hollywood before. And in some cases, I've been pretty closely involved with trying to adapt it. And so, of course, I had in the back of my mind, oh, maybe somebody will option this. But I, you know, it's one of those things where like, when I'm writing the book, I can't really think about that too much because it'll otherwise it'll start to influence my decisions in a way that, you know, like there's stuff that maybe I would have done differently if I'd thought of this as basically like a TV pitch in book form. Mm-hmm. Like I might have kind of dialed back some of the wilder, wackier elements. And I'm glad I didn't because I think, you know, obviously there's some stuff that I put in there that's going to be a challenge for the people adapting it, but it's also stuff that I'm just like so excited about and so in love with. And I feel like we've seen like Hollywood has been able to, especially the last several years, stuff that I never thought would be able to be put on screen has been put on screen. And so I, but I mean, yeah, I feel like um, I try not to psych myself out too much, like about the Hollywood stuff and about like what something could turn into because otherwise when you're writing, you're just kind of playing in your own private little garden and kind of just like having a blast with that. And I want to hold on to as much of that as I can. Because otherwise that's, it gets to be, yeah. Sure, that makes sense. I think <laughs> part of what I was asking is because 
even this like little device of the the ever speak like intros every character when they come in it's it feels very like um ready for like a moment in tv where somebody would like turn around and <laughs> be like facing the camera and it's like hey i'm you know like with their name and pronoun because it's very it's um it's very cinematic it's a very cinematic book which is i love that great. that's that'd be really fun i love that way of doing it yeah that's really it's, fun it's it's real ready it's real ready to be on tv Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! I guess go back to something that we were talking about earlier when you were saying that, you know, that this was a path of escape for you at a, at a younger age or, or that you hoped for a path of escape. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Like that, that when you were in this Tina moment of wishing that you could leave the planet, like what was, what was going on in your life? Where were you living? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Connecticut, uh, actually kind of rural Connecticut. My parents taught at the university there. And yeah, I mean, I was, I've talked about this a lot. I was, I was bullied in basically from elementary school onwards. I had a really like, especially in elementary school, but also in junior high, I had a really severe learning disability. I couldn't do any of the schoolwork. And so I was kind of like a super nerdy kid who was bad at school, which I think is probably the bad, the worst combination you can be. Like I was super nerdy, but I couldn't do basic, basic math or, you know, yeah, that is, that is what a bummer of a combo. At least if you're a a, a nerd who's succeeding at test taking, then you fit a stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, at the time, like my parents were kind of freaked out. Everybody was kind of like, what the hell? And like, you know, I, I think I read above my grade level, but I couldn't write. And I was like, you know, I was just having a really hard time. And uh, yeah, and I mean, and I, I definitely did not ever fit in as like a dude or as a boy with like the other kids. Like it was a thing that was very clearly from an early age. I was just, that was not happening. And like, I didn't have the concept of trans until I was much older. And I didn't really understand that that was a thing that somebody could be. Uh, but I definitely was uh, not really, you know, I was, I don't know. I just, from early on, kids were calling me like homophobic slurs and stuff. And I feel like they were, you know, that was probably just like partly that they would use that as an insult for anybody. But I think it was also, it was personal in that I think I I was pretty obviously queer. And like, I don't know, it was, um, yeah, I just used to kind of, be lost in my own head like during recess when everybody else was playing I would just be like wandering around kind of making up stories in my head and kind of you know inventing whole worlds that I could like imagine and like you know 
castles and superhero headquarters and just like sketching giant maps of imaginary places in my mind. And that was how I got through a lot of those years of like being kind of a weird outcast and also just like being really obsessed with like sci-fi and fantasy and stuff. And like there was one year where I, we went to a new school and I just got really like, I think I got like a couple of concussions. I was like, I got beat up really bad. And I was just like, my main escape was this show called Star Blazers, which is this anime show. It's actually the real name in Japanese is Space Battleship Yamato. And it's like about these people who take a World War II submarine into space to save the planet from like an evil plague or something. It was like very complicated, but it was a really fun show and just like gorgeous animation and super exciting. Every episode was just like super dramatic. And that was just like my total escape. And so I just, I always wanted to just like, I just kind of lived in a dream world for a lot of my childhood. And that I feel like prepared me for the career I have now in a way. Like, I feel like I just yeah. never stopped living in a dream world. Well, I mean, thank you for sharing that. And some of that experience actually does show up in this book in that um, Tina has like a best friend from home, Rachel, who is bullied. And it's an interesting thing as now that like, as you were describing your life, I'm realizing how the way that it shows up in the book is kind of interesting because um, like Tina knows that this happened to Rachel and um, has compassion and is like an observer of it. And it is the truth. And I just think about how powerful that is actually, because for so many people that are bullied, um, and he's very isolating experience because I mean, not, not just by the bullies, but that the other part of it is like the non-acknowledgement that it's even happening. Um, I know for me as a kid, like I was, I was very bullied, but there are like older episodes of this podcast where like, I would not even say that because it took me till like a couple years ago to realize that because nobody else around me seemed to see that that was happening. And everybody was sort of moving through life as if it wasn't. And I think it was very tough for me to identify that that was happening in my own life when there was like nobody else that was, you know, as a child. So it's like hard to conceive of a reality that other people don't acknowledge at any age, but especially when you're like a little kid, you know? Um, And I think it's like a very beautiful part of these two characters relationship. Yeah. Thank you. That was something that really evolved actually, like right up until the final draft of that book, that was one of the elements that kept changing and evolving. And like, I feel like Rachel is kind of in a lot of ways, the heart of the book. She's like, she's a character who's super close to my heart. She's like this super shy, introverted artist who kind of, sometimes she just gets too much of people. She has to go be by herself for a while and draw. And like, she just, that's her thing is like, she'll be like, okay, I've had enough humans. I have to go be by myself. And like, everybody kind of respects that, which is the thing that I really, uh, another kind of utopian thing in this book is that people are not like, oh yeah, you know, when people are like, you have to come out and socialize. They're like, no, no, Rachel, Rachel needs her alone time. And that's just the way she is. And people just, you know, even on this tiny starship that they're going through empty space, you know, entrapped in this little tin can, people give her space, which I thought was really fun and really, really affirming, actually really good. Uh, But 
You know, the thing about bullying is the thing that turns up in a lot of my work, actually. It's a thing that's like a theme in my in my writing because it is a thing that I experienced that obviously left some scars, I would say. And so I keep coming back to it and kind of trying to like poke at it. And like um, one of the things that happened with Tina and Rachel in earlier drafts of the book, which I think is still there in this version of the book, but it's it's more subtle, is that, you know, Tina kind of appointed herself Rachel's protector at a certain point. And was like, I will protect you from the bullies. And Rachel felt like, this was more in earlier drafts of the book. Rachel felt like that made Rachel even an even bigger target. Because anytime Tina wasn't around, it's like, oh, your protector isn't here. Your bodyguard is, is, isn't here. We're now is our chance to do whatever. But also it just was announcing to everybody that Rachel was like a victim and that Rachel was, you know, helpless. And I felt like, like I said, earlier drafts of the book, that was a little bit more on the surface. And I kind of dialed it back in part because we needed to really love Tina as much as we love Rachel. And this was the thing my editor and I talked about a lot. But like this kind of plays into the thing of like being a hero is complicated. Like sometimes, you know, you want to just protect people, but that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to be there for them and to just like, you know, empower them as much as you can, but also to like just understand that they have to they have stuff that they're dealing with and like i feel like there's ways to like help defend people from bullies but like announcing that you're their bodyguard or that you're protector the way tina kind of does in some versions of that story <laughs> is not the right way because it's centering yourself and that's kind of what tina was doing a lot and using like i feel like part of what that dynamic was is is maybe tina kind of using rachel as a prop in her story of herself as a hero and so that was the thing that Rachel had to tell her, like, no, that's not being a hero. That's just being, you know, a, kind of a, a show off or whatever. That's being, a, you know, a blowhard. And so I don't know, but I feel like there's still a little bit of that in the book. But I feel like in the end, what I what I lost when I got rid of that or when I dialed that way back, what I gained rather was more just like understanding and kindness between Tina and Rachel from the very beginning. And like, they their friendship is really like it's one of the things that makes me really happy about this book as it turned out because i feel like they are just there for each other and they support each other in ways that i really it feels aspirational to me like it feels like that's the kind of friendship that i cherish in real life and that i really love and that you know is hard to come by oftentimes and i'm so grateful i do have people like that in my life and like the way that Rachel and Tina, like Rachel supports Tina in like her desire to leave the planet and be an alien superhero. And Tina supports Rachel and her desire to be an artist and to like be, you know, safe and appreciated. And I feel like that was actually a thing that once I dialed back the kind of I'm your protector stuff, I got more of that other thing, which felt like actually a really good trade-off and made the book a lot. I, I fell in love with these characters faster once that was the case. Yeah, I totally hear you. I mean, I think that that it, I'm, I'm glad that that went in that direction um, because, you know, I know for me, like just thinking about my own human tendencies, I think because I was like picked on as a kid or singled out or felt weird, like I did sort of, it was easier for me to defend other people because I think that it was a way of like, hmm. fighting back like I just like like when I was a little kid I had like a fist fight one time at school with like a dude who was picking on my one of my friends and it just I don't 
you know, I, I think also, I mean, I'm not like, <laughs> but nobody was like hurt. I was like 10. I didn't know how to throw a punch, but I did get into a fist fight with him. And I think that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't getting into a fist fight with the people who were like saying shit to me. It was just easier for me, I think, to look outside myself and feel bad for others. I think it, that was a way of like not feeling the pain for myself. And I, I do think that as an adult, I've looked more for relationships where, um, like you're saying, where, where people just have like space to be upset. It's just not something I knew a lot about at a younger age or, and, you know, I don't know where your evolution was on that or, um, or where you are with that. But for me, yeah, it was like a process to get to a place where what I was looking for was just like, we hang out together and listen to each other. That wasn't where I always was. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that we all have to get better at. I think that nobody reaches adulthood, you know, or at least reaches like teenhood with that like toolkit completely like, you know, (laughs) intact or like completely stocked with tools. I feel like a lot of us have to learn to be better listeners. A lot of us have to learn to like, you know, be open to other people's pain without trying to like necessarily have a solution to offer. Like, I feel like that's just something that we all kind of struggle with. And I definitely went through phases when I was younger of trying to be a bit of a white knight because I didn't want other people to like be as hurt as I had been. And, you know, I found through kind of hard experience that sometimes you just have to like be there for people without trying to like fix their problems. And it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, it's, it's can be really heartbreaking actually, especially when people are struggling with stuff that's like, you know, that's, that's not, you know, it's not an easily solved external problem. It's like problems in their own life that, you know, they have to make changes or whatever. Got it. I mean, I don't know. I love, I love that we're talking about this because I don't, I don't know that we talk about this a lot as a community. I mean, I'm just thinking about the larger community implications and especially in the last like decade as so much of the queer experience has like being a, having like an activist mentality and wanting social change is so part of like the mainstream queer experience, as opposed to in the past where I think, you know, some people were like living a more, attempting to be more under the radar for their own self-protection. Now, I think if you're a queer person, it's like expected that we will fight for social change. And I think that the other side of that is that um, when we're focused so much on change, I think sometimes it can like break down. I, I think we don't talk a lot about like, well, what are you supposed to do if your friends or your chosen family or your community, if they've gone through something like, is it like go to Twitter and be angry on Twitter? Is that like the, is that like the be all end all or like, are there other skills that we also need to have and culture in ourselves? Um, it's you know it's never easy. I, I, I do. And it's never easy. And like so many people I know have suffered so much in the last like several years. And like, you know, it's, I feel like I've seen communities really come together, like rally to help people who are having a rough time. And I've also seen kind of the opposite. I've seen, you know, communities failing people and it's just, it's a, it's, it can go either way. And I think it's about just like paying attention and listening and like being willing to kind of put yourself out there for people, but not in a way that centers yourself, which is the hard part. And I feel like, but you know, I feel like, um, I have always found that the more 
a queer community is invested in in overall like intersectional kind of change and like in kind of fighting for justice across like many axes or whatever, the more beautiful and supportive a community it tends to be as well. Like I feel like, and there's, I'm sure there's exceptions where a community got really political and also really toxic, but I found that the ones, when I've been around queer people who are like resolutely apolitical or resolutely like, you know, we're just going to only care about our tiny group and not care about people who are suffering nearby, those groups have often felt really sterile to me and very kind of, you know, I feel like that commitment to um, to justice, to helping, to, to recognizing that all of our struggles are connected makes communities richer in so many ways. And I've seen that over and over again. Like when I first kind of moved to the Bay Area, I was on the writing, I was on, on the editorial staff of this bisexual magazine called Anything That Moves, which it was it was a famous magazine back in the day. I don't think anybody remembers it now, but it was like a big deal in the 90s and the first like third of the 2000s. It was like on newsstands everywhere. It was like you could walk into like Barnes and Noble or Borders or like any newsstand and find like a bisexual magazine that was like really good production values, really beautiful. Also, it's an incredible title. <laughs> I know anything that moves. And like our mantra was, we will publish anything that moves us. And I joined oh this back in like 99, like towards the end. And it was just, it was such a beautiful That's magazine. So it, was, it was so great. But every issue, there were articles about anti-racism, about fat phobia, about transphobia, about, you know, uh, you know, economic inequality. And that we were just really clear in our editorial meetings that this is part of bisexual liberation is if we don't deal with these other things, then we don't, we don't get anything. Then our struggle is pointless. And that was like kind of where I learned that. That was like, right. that was like, that was my, like, that was my school kind of in a way. So I want to ask you before we get to, I want to make sure to revisit this because it, we were talking about this, you know, you're growing up and having a uh, learning disability and like really not being able to function well in a traditional school system. So wh- how, what happened in your life to go from that to like published author who is, you know, able to, and I'm sure this is a very long answer, but like, what were the moments? How did you get from there to where you are today? I mean, there were so many things that happened. Um, One of the things that I always give credit to is that I had this uh, special education teacher uh, named Lynn Pennington, who I've, you know, uh, I'm still friends with her. I had dinner with her a few years ago. We, she just recently sent me a bunch of photos of me as like a kid. Um, She and I talk a lot and, uh, you know, she took me under her wing in like, first, second, third, fourth grade. And like when all the other teachers, whether when all the regular teachers were just done with me, they were just like fed up with me. She took me under her wing and was like, okay, I'm going to just, she spent hours and hours working with me. And part of what she did, she did, she went so, she did so much to try to like help me, like to understand my problems and to get past them. But also she was like, okay, if you can master writing the alphabet or writing letters legibly, we're going to write a stage play and we're going to get it. You're going to write a stage play. Like I was going to write a stage play and we're going to get it performed at school. And so that was like my, and basically we did that all along. My rewards for 
being able to master basic schoolwork were creative writing exercises that got to be something cool and interesting. And that, that, that got to actually become a, a thing that I could be proud of. Like later we made a fake newspaper or I made a fake newspaper with her help. And then we visited the offices of a real newspaper. And like, so I could see what newspapers were actually like. And she just, she spent so much time with me just trying to help me. And like, I had coordination problems. I still have coordination problems. And she worked with me on those. She basically was like an incredible, like so patient and generous and kind. She was such an incredible teacher. And she's just, she's gone on to do so much for so many other kids. I kind of knew her at the start of her career. And like I said, we're still friends. And I, you know, she just added me on Instagram and I was like, yay, it's <laughs> my first grade special education teacher. Oh my God. Um, so I'm just, I don't know. She's amazing. But also, wow. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, nerdy, nerdy stuff really got me through a lot of things. Like, yeah. you know, when I was in high school, a bunch of friends and I were like making up our own stories that were like, we would all write parts of it. And like, that was kind of escape for us. And I don't know, stuff, just stuff like that. Yeah. Well, as you're talking about this, this um, teacher, I mean, the thing, the thing very early, right out of college, I worked in special ed for a while. And I thought that oh, that's wow. what I was going to do. And I like was in social work school to be a therapist that worked with uh, with like communities and schools but um anyway then i started then i stopped going to grad school because i was also doing stand-up and nobody else that was doing stand-up was also in social work grad school um <laughs> but that is an unusual combination yeah it was but the the reason i'm saying this is there was um there was like one student when i worked at a high school who had, you know, an individual education plan. He like was in the special ed classes. He had been flagged from like a really young age as needing a ton of extra help. And um, I was working with him one-on-one because I was working on with him one-on-one. It was like the first time he'd had that experience in his life. He was a freshman in high school. And I realized that the like he wasn't able to read. And so the thing that had been happening since he was in fourth grade is that uh, the other students in his classes had been able to read and he hadn't. So he wasn't able to perform at the level that they were on tests or in answering questions or in doing his homework because he couldn't do the fundamental thing that his um, fellow students could do. And I went to the the principal of our school and asked to have him for like an extra hour a day instead of one hour we would work together for two hours a day and then also got special permission for him to come over the summer and i tutored him directly for hours a day over the summer and then he was a sophomore and he um was able to read and he graduated from high school and he went to college and oh my god i am amazing. telling this story because it is similar to yours in that like he just happened to go to this high school where there was a person who was available to tutor him, just like what you're talking about. Like there, you know, you, the, I think just seeing this with my own eyes, it was like the, it was my, it was an experience that I had where it was like, oh, this is at random in many ways, because it is me meeting this person. Like that is so plucked from the universe. Like that's so at random and him, 
happening to be at a school where like that's what special ed looked like or you know where he and I could work together that closely um you know how much I'm assuming that that I mean I know that that changed his life because he was able to graduate high school because of that that's and amazing it's, it's not about like the self-aggrandizement or anything but it's more about like um the distribution of services is so wild because for somebody to just happen into that there's like a parallel there are you know a zillion parallel people that just don't have that experience and then for us to be talking and you to write this book that is brilliant that then perhaps would become a tv show you know it, it i think this is one of those things that we don't talk a lot about like how giving people the services that they need it doesn't just like help that person it helps society it helps culture like we get nice things because that teacher gave you her time you know and it's yeah it really is like that important i mean that kid was so lucky to have you and that's an amazing story and i think that's just so inspiring and amazing and just like wonderful and it is like man like i do obsess about this a lot not with regards to myself, but just like how there, I know, like, I just know in my bones that there are kids out there, probably like millions of kids who are slipping through the cracks, who could be our next, they could be the next Stephen Hawking or Einstein. (laughs) Yeah. They could be the next, whatever they could be the next, they could, they could be revolutionizing our world in all sorts of ways, but they aren't getting the support they need. They aren't getting, you know, the help they need at a crucial age and are just slipping through the cracks and maybe are not, you know, are just like put on a track where it's like, no, you are not, you're, this is where you're going to be for the rest of your life. And like, that is the thing that we do is where we decide, we, we, we judge kids at a pretty early age and decide what track they're on and where they're, yes. where they're going to end up. And like, it's just, it really, like, when I think about it, sometimes that, that that actually does keep me up at night thinking about, like, you know, we've built a system that fails, you know, we don't even know how many kids, are, you know, around the world, but even in the United States, who, if they were nurtured, could be, you know, that's the thing I love about Star Trek, incidentally, is that the only things they say all the time in Star Trek is that the most important thing is to nurture all of our potential and to let all of us live our best life and to be, you know, and that's, it's not about money. Like there's a, a scene in one of the Next Generation episodes where like, you know, Captain Picard is like, we got rid of money because money, we decided money was bullshit. He doesn't say bullshit, but he was like, we got rid of money because we decided money was bullshit. And that the real, the thing that's really valuable is to develop yourself and to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And money was getting in the way of that. So we got rid of it. And I'm just like, man, I mean, that's the, that's the utopia that I'm, I want to live in, honestly. Well, I, I got to say, I do think it's, it's, this is one of those things where it's like, and then what do we do about it? But to me, you just sharing your story openly and talking about that this was your experience, I think is, is a way of, you know, shining a light on the fact that that is happening because it is such a complicated issue. It can, it can, I think, sometimes feel almost like, how could this possibly be attacked or changed? But one way is just to talk about it here. This is a way to do it, you know? For um, sure. And, uh, and 
oh god now we'll exhale a big breath because it is heartbreaking to think about it's so fucking huge why are you sorry i am the one we why no no sorry (laughs) it's just the world like sometimes the world is just one has to just exhale you know um well charlie jane it has been so great talking to you thank you for making time again to come back and it was my absolute pleasure and thanks so much for your patience and for making this happen in spite of all of the like the tree gods and (laughs) internet gods and everybody like you know yeah well i love the book and and i like can't wait to read more of your stuff and also to see more of your stuff um yeah really and um before i send you back into your day. I just wanted to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel like you could be who you are today. Is there somebody you'd like to shout? Um, I'm going to shout out Rika Aoki, who is a trans woman. Actually, she's in LA and uh, I've known her forever, but she published a science fiction novel called Light from Uncommon Stars that just like knocked my socks off. And it's about a trans girl who meets a violin teacher who has made a deal with the devil, but also is in love with an alien donut uh, maker. And it's just, it's such a fun, <laughs> great, but also just like heartfelt, just sweet, amazing book. And I really hope everybody should read it. Give, give me the title one more time. Light from Uncommon Stars. Light from Uncommon Stars. It is Stars. so good. It's I will such, a, such a beautiful book. It's so beautiful. I love it. And your book that we're talking about today is called victories greater than death. And, um, I also listened to it on audible. So anybody that is a more of a listening person, there's that path too. Um, the audiobook is by princess Bubblegum from adventure time. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's the entire book is read by princess Bubblegum. And it just, <laughs> I, I, I'm actually friends with Hinden Walsh and I was so happy that she agreed to do with it. Because that's such a, I, I'm like, oh my God, it's so perfect. Yeah, it's great. It's beautiful. Um, well, thanks, Charlotte. Jane. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And, you know, this was definitely worth the wait.